Well, thank you to all four of you for that reminder of the ultimate reason we have for thanksgiving. I want to echo what Tim said uh, earlier by uh, confirming the fact that God works in amazing sovereign ways to uh, to send us a singular message when we gather to worship Him. And I feel like what we're going to study from God's Word together this morning is simply just going to reiterate the truths that we have already focused on in our time of singing and uh, listening to God's truth proclaimed through music already this morning. You may have noticed when I was up here earlier that weird things are happening in my throat I did not anticipate that, um, and I apologize in advance if it comes back again. I'll try not to be gross and distracting. Uh, I've got water. I got a lozenge from Debbie Blake, so we're going to give it a whirl, okay? Let's go back to Psalm 134 this morning. Psalm 134. We are... At the beginning of another election cycle here in our nation, and while that process in general has largely proven to be effective in choosing our leaders, it's also been very effective in bringing out some less positive traits in our society, bringing those to the fore. And it seems particularly the case recently, and there's really no reason to think that it's going to be any different this time around. Anything from personal petty exchanges between candidates to riots at rallies and everything in between. It's all a really pleasant indictment on our society, isn't it? But candidates to varying degrees shape their arguments and their promises and, uh, and they present them on a basic premise. This is really what is behind the message of every political candidate at every level when they speak to their potential constituents. And it's simply this, vote for me and you'll have it good, right? Vote for me, honor me with your vote, honor me with your support, perhaps even give me adoration and allegiance, and it'll work out really, really well for you. That's the promise that they all give. And that's not a new concept at all, really. Human leaders have given those promises and ones like those for as long as there's been government in the world. And yet so often those promises are left unfulfilled, aren't they? That leader who brought so much excitement at the beginning ultimately proves to be a letdown or worse. (laughs) And those who gave their allegiance and adoration to that leader, those who swallowed that promise and believed that promise, they're left greatly disappointed. But that is not the picture we find in Psalm 134. Not at all. It's quite the opposite. The one who calls for our adoration and calls for our allegiance and calls for our thanks here this morning is unquestionably worthy of that honor. And the people that serve this ruler, this Lord, the Lord of all, those people are not doomed to disappointment. Psalms 120 through 134 have been labeled as the songs of ascents in traditional Jewish literature, and that dates back almost two millennia, and it was probably uh, 
a label that existed in verbal tradition long before that. These songs were likely sung by the people of God as they made their periodic pilgrimages up to Jerusalem, took that hike up into the mountains of Judea, the songs of ascents as they ascended up to Jerusalem to worship God for their three annual worship festivals throughout the year. The Law of Moses set up the expectation and practice of participating as the entire group of God's people three times a year. Those are set up in Deuteronomy chapter 16 in the law of God. These songs are preparation for worship. They're preparation for times of worship or thanksgiving to God together. That's what these psalms were written for. There's a strong possibility actually that this brief hymn, since it's the last one in the list, It was used to conclude, perhaps, those same gatherings, those same worship festivals in the Old Testament temple. This could very well be the final stanza of praise from God's people every time they gathered together to worship. And while we're not Israel, we too anticipate a festival of sorts this week, one that is set aside for the purpose of giving thanks. Now, yes, the the holiday commemorates a specific instance of thanksgiving in our national heritage, in our national history. And we are not Israel, and our thanksgiving has nothing remotely related to this in terms of uh, commands spiritually to follow them or as a nation or anything like that. But that instance in our national history that we celebrate this week commemorates a specific instance of thanksgiving to the same God that is being worshipped here in Psalm 134. It's a celebration of the goodness of that God, the God worshipped here in this psalm. But sadly, in the culture around us, very little giving of thanks is probably going to occur this week. And when it does, it's often pretty token at best. Some of those who think about it at all often don't have much of an idea who they're actually thanking or why. But this psalm provides us with a reminder that we as God's people can be different. We as God's people must be different. It reminds us of our purpose every time we gather as God's people to worship Him. And it also provides reason for great joy, reason for worship, reason for giving of thanks every single day because we are a blessed people. Immensely and infinitely blessed. Our focus, our calling, our purpose every Sunday morning when we gather together and our purpose every day in every week to follow is this. Very simply, this is the message of this simple psalm. Bless the Lord, the source of all blessing. Bless the Lord for His blessings to you. The glorious character of God here is the content of our worship and thanks, and it also motivates our worship and thanks. But do we come together with this undistracted purpose? Were you glad this morning to get up and come to worship with God's people? Or is gathering to worship a slight inconvenience, perhaps? Or an act of duty, perhaps? Or even a drudgery to some of us? 
Will the focus on thanks for His goodness in the week to come be genuine and heartfelt? Or is it going to be casual or forced or even fake? Just because it's what we do at Thanksgiving. Does the worthiness of our God to be blessed and praised and thanked, does that really impact our daily lives all that much at all? I think we need to admit that our self-worshipping hearts need to be refocused. Refocused on the only proper object of praise, and that is the God we are called to bless here in Psalm 134. And we're going to see that He has given us wondrous reasons to do so. Willingly to do so joyfully both today as we gather together to praise Him and in the week to come when we continue that praise and thanks. All it takes is a brief reading of this psalm to catch a theme, right? It's the theme of blessing. The term bless here is key to understanding the message of this psalm, and it's also a major theme all throughout the book of Psalms. The very first word in the entire collection of psalms is this one, blessed. What does it mean? Well, its most basic meaning is the bestowal of something good. The uh, ascribing of something good in abundance to someone. To bless that person. Depending on the context, blessing in Scripture can refer to things like favor or protection or provision or praise. And then fitting for our mindset this time of year, the giving of thanks as well. All of that is wrapped up in this concept of blessing, and it's all about abundance. Giving it in abundance. And what is interesting here is that two entities are being blessed in this psalm. God's people are blessing Him. God's people are ascribing what is good to Him. They are giving thanks and praising Him. And then He, in turn, is blessing them, which is why we give thanks in the first place. So even in this very short psalm, we have this cycle of blessing that should be characteristic in the lives of God's people. That's how we'll break down this passage together, beginning first of all with this truth in verses 1 and 2, that the Lord is worthy of blessing from His people. He is worthy of blessing from His people. God's people are called to bless the Lord here. Look first of all at verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. This hymn reminds us that this worship, this calling to bless the Lord, it's all-inclusive. Bless Him. Bestow what is good to Him. And bestow it in abundance. All you His servants. It's all-inclusive. But who is this psalm referencing here? What, what, what are these servants that the psalm is referring to? Could it be all of Israel? Well, it could be. But the second part of verse 1, I think, may lead us to a narrower focus here in reference to all of the servants of God in the Old Testament. The first two verses of this psalm are directed to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. This group included the priests as well as the non-priestly families in the tribe, and the, this entire twelfth of God's people are dedicated by law to worship God. Dedicated to facilitate the worship and the growth and the knowledge of God among all of God's people. That's the job of the Levites. 
They assisted the priests by fulfilling other roles in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. They were gatekeepers. They were song leaders. They prepared the showbread. They did all kinds of other things in service to God in the tabernacle and the temple, all related to leading God's people at large in worship to Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, God sets this tribe apart. Listen to the words He uses here. To stand before the Lord and to bless His name. That's the Levite's job. That's their job description. When David organized them even further, when he was anticipating that his son Solomon would construct the temple, he commanded that they were to stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening or at night. 1 Chronicles 9.33 says that they were on duty day and night. Which, of course, is referenced here in verse 1. So when the psalmist refers to those who stand by night in the house of the Lord, he's calling on the Levites to fulfill their role as servants of the Lord in worshiping Him, to represent God's people in ongoing, constant temple worship so that even when the rest of the congregation left Jerusalem and went back to their homes, there was a group always there worshiping the Lord. They were uniquely set apart. They were consecrated to do so. They all played some role in the temple. And it wasn't just their calling at festival time. It wasn't something they could sign out of and clock out of after each of those three annual festivals. No, they were to continually bless the Lord. But what's the parallel for us today in the church age? While the Old Testament Levites and priests fulfilled this role in Psalm 134, New Testament believers, members of Christ's church, you and me, all fill this role now. All of us. The priests and the Levites served as the partition of sorts between God and the congregation at large in the Old Testament, but in Christ, we're taught that that barrier is now torn down. Each of us now has full access to this job, has the full privilege of fulfilling this role that the Levites filled in the Old Testament. Each of us now is a priest of God with direct access to God's throne to worship Him directly. In the Old Testament, the kingdom was represented by the priests. In the New Testament, we are now a kingdom of priests. That's the difference. So when we see an all-inclusive calling here in verse 1, it means all-inclusive for us. This is the calling for us. Stand and serve. Be constant and frequent in your participation in blessing the Lord. All of us, all the time. All-inclusive. But not only is this calling all-inclusive, it's also all-consuming. Look at verse 2. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. This idea of lifting up the hands to bless the Lord, it actually has a deeper meaning than just what you're supposed to do with your hands when you worship. It's biblically the expression of lifting up your hands in worship. It's simply an outward expression of the condition of someone's heart. The hands, what the hands did indicated where the heart was. This is a calling to worship with someone's all. That is the point. 
when he brings up these hands lifted up. This motif elsewhere emphasizes a clean, pure heart approach to worshiping God. It's a sanctified heart. In fact, the phrase to the holy place here in verse 2, it could be translated, lift up your hands in holiness. So, worshiping without the stain of sin. Coming to God and giving Him your focus with a pure heart. It can also imply humility, a humble heart. It could be a posture of prayer. Expressing our great need, our earnest desire for God to reveal His character to us. We are here to worship You and we plead for You to reveal Yourself to us. We want to see you. That's the picture. So we must humble ourselves as we worship. Thanksgiving is an act of humility. We must deal with our sin and recognize our abundant need. And then we also, not only must we humble ourselves, we must exalt Him and make Him the single focus as we worship, as we give thanks. The end of verse 2, in case we missed it in verse 1, states it again. Bless the Lord. He's the focus. He's the one being exalted. So how I feel on a particular day, what my preferences are, or whether or not this exercise of worship is convenient for me, all of those things are either greatly secondary or completely inconsequential altogether. All the other distractions of life or holiday traditions, no matter how much I enjoy them, no matter how much I value them, and they are enjoyable and valuable, but they must pale in comparison to the daily habit, the daily mindset of giving thanks to God. God's people are called to bless the Lord, and He is worthy of that focus. He's worthy of that blessing from His people, and it's all-inclusive. In Christ, you and I now bear the role of constant worship. As a child of God, you are bought for the purpose of bringing Him honor, redeemed for that reason. You're consecrated. You are set apart uniquely to proclaim His excellencies. And you have the privilege and you have the responsibility to participate actively and busily and energetically and gladly when we worship together. This means we make this weekly time together of utmost priority, whether we want to or not. This means that we prepare our hearts before we even show up by prayerfully meditating on the character of the one you are about to worship. Proper corporate worship is then an outward um, outgrowth of the constant individual praise that you have participated in throughout the week. It's a culmination of of the focus of this past week, and it is a resetting of that focus for the week to come. We must come together purely with clean, repentant hearts, ready to receive His truth, ready to act it out, ready to obey it. And then we can prepare each other. Parents, lead your families verbally in preparation for worship. Remind each other of the joy and the seriousness at the same time of what we are about to do together. Let our fellowship before each service time 
be actually preparatory instead of just peripheral when we walk in these doors. Come together with arms proverbially outstretched, humbly admitting to yourself and to others how much I need to be here today. And then while you worship, discipline your mind to be fully engaged in every aspect of the service. Sing with energy and your mind concentrating on the truth that we're singing. Pray along in silent prayer with the prayer of the leaders from the front. Refuse distractions. Take notes if you struggle to stay connected. Those in the choir or the orchestra or participating in the other platform aspects, approach every part of the opportunity you have as a chance to deflect attention to the object of worship and away from you. This calling doesn't end when we walk out these doors either. Regular, personal, private worship through the study of God's Word and through prayer to Him, those are literally the two most foundational acts and priorities of your life. And as you do, your knowledge of the worthiness of your God will be praised and will expand, and then He'll receive even more praise from you as you grow. That knowledge will, able you, will enable you to view each daily circumstance, no matter what it is, as a reason for thanksgiving instead of a reason to complain. I need to be reminded of that a lot. Each new day, focusing on His great worth and His good deeds towards you, that will grow your thanks, fulfilling more and more what you were created to do. This week, with all its reminders to be thankful, is a golden opportunity to practice these daily priorities that should be present all the time. All the time. It's all-inclusive. It's all-consuming. Come, bless the Lord, everyone, in every way, all the time, by every means available to us. Bless the Lord. Abundantly bestowing what is good and right and proper and fitting because he is worthy of that. But then the same word is used to describe something else in verse 3. To describe God's acts toward you. Toward us. And this is where we are to be amazed. Because the Lord is worthy of blessing from His people. And now in verse 3, the Lord is the source of blessing for His people. God's people are blessed by the Lord. Look at verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Do you see how the arrow of blessing goes the other way now? In this cycle of blessing. And while the emphasis here is on God's people receiving blessing from Him, not praise and thanks, but the showering of good favor, note that He's still the focus. He's still the central figure. His blessing is the reason for ours in return. This is an amazing little verse, but we need to unpack it a little bit to be sure we don't miss all of the little truths here. Because it's absolutely loaded. Look at the first part again. May the Lord bless you from Zion. So much we could talk about right there. 
The Levites call on God to bless the departing congregation of Israel as they leave their worship festival and head back to their homes. The Levites call on God to bless the departing congregation. And by doing so, they are showing and reminding God's people that God is abundantly willing to bless. Abundantly willing. And that's an amazing truth, both for Israel then and for us now. Your God blesses you. He does. He blesses you. That, how little that massive reality actually impacts me and you. Both for Israel and for us. No wonder their worship and ours is so weak and half-hearted. No wonder we're so typically ungrateful, just like they were throughout their Old Testament history. Your God blesses you. What was the significance of this God's blessing coming from Zion here? Not specifically from heaven, which we would naturally think it would say, even though Scripture says that in plenty of other places, but particularly from Zion. Well, Mount Zion is the general term given to describe Jerusalem, the place where God chose to reside, where He chose to live with His Old Testament people. Here is where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. Here is where the temple was built. This is the place that signified God's presence with them. And the cloud that revealed the tangibleness of His presence was there for them to see. This was the place of His presence. Here, the transcendent God of the universe was accessible. He was with His people. He was accessible to His people. He blesses us with His presence. God is here blessing you, this psalm says. Right here, with you, blessing you. What else can we infer here? How does God make Himself accessible to us today? What form does that tangible, close presence take today? The answer is through the message that Chris and Kelly gave us a few minutes ago. He blesses us with His presence and He blesses us with the Savior. In verse 3, the congregation prepares to leave the presence of the Lord by departing Jerusalem. His blessing is going to go with them even as the Levites pray for in verse 3. But His temple stayed there. His temple remained in Zion. But now in Christ, believers don't leave the temple. They are the temple. We are the temple. God, the Holy Spirit, resides in you. In Christ, we all participate fully in and have full access to the blessings of worshiping under this new covenant built by Christ's blood. Christ is our priest. His sacrifice gives full access. His intercession gives full freedom. This is our perfect, great, high priest. Your God is blessing you with the greatest of blessings, Jesus. He was the first blessing you as an unregenerate unbeliever dead in your sins received and the blessing of Jesus just keeps on blessing. All the more reason to bless the Lord. 
And then finally, the end of verse 3. Why bring up God as creator here? He who made heaven and earth. The psalmist here is pointing out the fact that while God is abundantly willing to bless, He is also abundantly able to bless. First, He blesses with the might of a Creator. A God who made heaven, a God who made earth, has literally everything in the universe at His disposal when blessing His people, right? This is the God blessing you. He can draw on his endless treasures, his endless resources, and his endless power directly for the good of those who worship him and those who give thanks to him. He bestows this good, and when he bestows good, he bestows the best because he is the God of heaven and earth. The Almighty One blesses you and me. One final truth is implied here. Not only does he bless with the might of a creator, but he blesses with the favor of a father. This mighty God chooses to bless me. Think about it. We ascribe blessing to him. We bestow good on his name and worship and thanks. Verses 1 and 2. And he's worthy of that blessing from his creatures because he is the creator. He's worthy of that. But his blessing to us is in stark contrast because we are immensely unworthy even of his attention, much less his abundant blessing. And yet he blesses us with his presence. The fact that he dwelt with his people here in Zion and dwells within his people today, that is amazing. He goes above and beyond us by blessing us in Jesus. We are so needy. You see, He doesn't need our blessing. But we perish without His blessing. Right? He is fully self-sustaining. And meanwhile, we are only sustained. And our only hope is through the merciful acts of blessing from Him. Even the common forms of grace toward everyone as a human race. The gift of breath, the gift of rain, the gift of provision but especially as people bought back from sin by His Son. The ultimate merciful act of blessing. Only He has the authority and the ability to give that gracious, unmerited favor, that blessing. And why does He do that? Because He loves you. Because He's your Father. He sustains, He comforts, He guides, He corrects, He protects. Infinitely more than even the best that earthly fathers could do. The best earthly fathers we have. He gives infinitely more. Your Father blesses you. Imagine yourself for a moment that you're a young beggar. You're growing up as a wretched pauper in a medieval city. A city is ruled by a tyrannical and unjust and oppressive king. But then that king is overthrown. He's overthrown by a foreign king who comes in, takes over leadership and rule over the city, sits on its throne, and this new king is completely different than the last one. He is wise. He's a good ruler. He uses his absolute authority not to oppress his subjects, 
and get great wealth for himself, but to provide for them, to give them their basic needs, and so, so much more. And the city is thriving now under the rule of this new king. And you're no longer that cold, starving wretch in the gutter that you were before. You may not have much still, but you're certainly provided for in abundance out of the king's storehouse that never seems to have any end to it as he bestows gifts on his people. But then one day, you're going about your business and a herald arrives from the court of this king. And he takes you into the king's presence. And the king tells you that he has chosen you as his heir. Chosen you. From now on, he won't simply provide for your needs out of his might as a ruler of this kingdom. No, the blessing that you receive that is now showered on you is from a father's heart. You're not just his subject. You're his child. You're his child. That makes an incredible difference. When God blesses his people, he bestows endless good things on them. Life, provision, vibrancy, joy, peace, guidance, care. And all of it is completely unmerited. It's unmerited favor. He's abundantly willing to bless us to bestow on us that favor. It doesn't mean that God's rich blessings take the form of ease for us or earthly prosperity for us. That's not His point at all because His blessings aren't designed to simply be temporal. They're not to be enjoyed only in this life. They're much deeper. They have more eternal value. And most importantly, they're not designed ultimately for my self-satisfaction but for His worth and for His glory because He is the ruler. He is the creator. He's worthy of that. He's justified in demanding that, but He has bestowed favor by making Himself accessible. We have a relationship with Him. And He's willing to do so, to provide that. He longs for that with you and with me. And He's provided the only way for that to be possible through His Son, through sending His Son to take your place, to pay your penalty, to die for you because of the love of God. But His willingness to bless us then is backed up by all of His ability to do so as Maker of heaven and earth. You see how this blessing from God enables and calls for and motivates and demands unceasing blessing from us to Him in worship? You see how this blessing from God calls also for a daily exercise of willing and joyous thanksgiving? His blessing is unmerited favor and attention and grace. So your blessing to Him is the only worthy response. What would this look like? Individually, God's blessing motivates repentance, for example. Because what I have been spared from means I now serve a new master and I am His. His blessing motivates humility because I am so unworthy of this. His blessing motivates me even in trials and difficulties, 
hardships of life to trust Him, even though they're difficult and even though those times of difficulty don't seem very much like blessing. It's those very hardships that are designed to remind you and me of how much we are abundantly dependent on Him for all of these good things, including strength and grace and peace in the midst of the tough stuff. And that He does provide all of those good things in abundance. And so in trial, those things shine even brighter. And a full focus on His blessings leaves me breathless and overwhelmed. My Father and yours is good and gracious beyond imagination, isn't He? Remember in closing the overall context of this psalm. This psalm was likely a responsive hymn for Israel to sing. The congregation calls out on the Levites to bless the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. The Levites respond for a call to God, for God to bless the congregation. Verse 3. What are God's people doing here together? This is people encouraging other people to bless the Lord. This is God's people actively encouraging one another to give thanks to this God. And we here at Cornerstone gather each week to do that. Today, we have gathered to do that. This week, with your family and friends, you will gather to do that. May God help us to humbly and fully and gladly pursue that calling together to bless the Lord. This is how we could describe our existence, our lives, in a nutshell. We are greatly blessed, and we are always blessing. Gather together to worship with gladness and thanks, O people of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your infinite, staggering blessings toward us. And then, Father, we plead for Your grace and help to bless You, our Lord, our Father, our Ruler, our Creator, our God, in return. Not just as we gather here, But as we go out from here in the week to come, may the thanksgiving and praise that our God receives bring you glory, bring you pleasure, because you alone deserve that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.